2: Welcome, everyone, to Trek FM's local watering hole, the Leaky Cauldron. I am so excited to be back here. Uh, I got to tell you, the pumpkin juice is flowing. The fire whiskey is burning my throat, but it's so good, I can't stop. I love being in the Harry Potter universe, and I have been eating, breathing, and sleeping Harry Potter for the last few days, just kind of thinking about what we're going to talk about. Uh, Before we do that, just reminded you that... uh, The 602 Club is part of the Trek FM network, which you can find at iTunes.com slash Trek FM. You can find all of our shows there. We have over 20 different shows here on the network for you to choose from all about Star Trek. And then we're the one where we talk about all the other fandoms we like. You can also find us online at Trek.FM. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Trek FM. We're on Twitter at Trek FM. You can leave the show a voicemail. Go to SpeakPipe.com slash Trek FM. And I would love to hear your thoughts on what we're going to talk about tonight. Of course, we've got the Babel Conference, our listeners-only discussion group. Just type Babel into the search field there on Facebook, and you'll find us. And, of course, if you want to contact us the old-fashioned way, that's right, the old-fashioned way these days, not owl post, but through, like, email, actual email, just go to trek.fm slash contact. Choose the show, the 602 Club. That'll send it right to me, and I'll send it on to our hosts for the week, which... I am super excited to have back in Leaky Cauldron, Drea. How are you?
0: Hi! Thanks for having me again. I'm really
2: excited for Harry Potter. I, I, me too. I'm, I'm just, uh, Tristan. How's it going? <laughs> uh, it's going great. I got my non-alcoholic butter beer
1: right next to me, and things are going to be good.
2: Nice. That's nice. okay. Just ha- means wait. there's more fire whiskey for me. Have either of you guys been to Harry Potter World, by the way?
1: Oh no! You had to bring that up and 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 hurt my feelings because we we planned a trip, we planned it, me and the girl planned it, and decided when we were gonna go, and you know how we were gonna go, and how we were gonna go and get our wands. Even though we don't have children, we don't care because we're gonna we're gonna get our wands by ourselves. And then something happened at the last second, we had to pull out, and it's it's been a sore spot ever since.
2: We were talking about going. And uh, we're like, let's just wait until they build it in California so we don't have to travel so far. That's hysterical.
0: So, it, so it's now open in California like a month and a half ago. And I'm, I'm worried. No, it is. Of, yeah, it opened like the first week in April. I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't know that. Last week in April. Yeah. Oh, we we got to go down there. I am, the I am informing the masses it is now open at Universal Studios Hollywood. As of like April 20th or something like that. But I was so worried about going so soon and being overrun by all the people mm, that yeah. I love from a distance on the radio and to meet in person. I, okay.
2: So I'm excited because that means that we can go, I can go down there and there's a bunch of people that I know from the network in LA that I'll actually get to see. So that's super exciting. So, man, I need, I need to start Googling that. Guys, can you hold on for a second? No, I'm just kidding. And at least uh, at
0: the, Costco here by my house. They had Harry Potter World tickets. Uh, at Costco, are you
2: serious? Yeah. Okay, maybe maybe we I need might to have plan to buy the like a... to you. <laughs> yeah, that would be okay. We'll we'll talk off the show. People are totally bored now, but we're going to be talking about <laughs> the Prisoner of Azkaban, which is a really big film in the Harry Potter universe because a lot of things changed from the first two, and the biggest change was the fact that. Chris Columbus decided that he, there was no way he was going to be able to direct all of these films. He had spent too many years of his life already, too many, too much time away from his family. It had been exhausting. Uh, you, you think about the work he had to do with all of these young children working with their schedules. He was tired. And so he decided it's time for a new director and maybe a new direction. And he was going to stay on as executive producer. And so they decided to, to go and choose a new director. And they came up with a wonderful choice, I think, which is Alfonso Corrion, who, I don't know, I, most people probably didn't know him all that much. The only thing I knew him from was You 2 Mama Tambien, which, when you think about it, interesting choice when you're getting into uh, teenagers in the Harry Potter universe and everything like that. So... What did you guys think when you first heard about this—that there was going to be this big shakeup in the Harry Potter universe, film-wise? Did that bother you at all, or did you just think, "Oh, it'll be kind of like you know, James Bond chooses a new director; it won't be a big deal." I uh, when I, when I first heard about it,
1: I was excited because I'm a big fan of his version of *Great Expectations* that came out in 1998. I I love that movie. I I think it's I think it's beautifully shot, beautifully acted, great production design, fantastic music, just great direction all around. And so I was excited to see him come about in Harry Potter and the Prisoner of Azkaban. Uh, My wife was not so excited because she was so in love with the Christopher Columbus aesthetic that she was scared that it was going to get too dark and too weird, or there was going to be too much motion to the camera. And uh, she was kind of partially right, but we still enjoyed the film. Um, So yeah, at at like... uh, before I saw the film, I was excited that uh, Alfonso was coming on.
0: So I had I had nothing. I had, I had no cares to give. I had no craps to give. I had no idea. Uh, but I, I do have a very good friend of mine who won't even watch these movies. Um, not only because of the director change, but because of the Dumbledore change. Uh, and it's really hard
2: to explain to him that that wasn't a choice. <laughs> like... Yeah. Didn't I mean, didn't I can't Bumbledore bring people back from the dead. It's not a pretty sight. I don't like doing that. I mean, if Genie can't bring people back from the dead, I don't know what he wants. Yeah, that's.
0: Yeah, that's so, but he won't even watch it now. So. That's so strange. It's sad. Hmm. It's so
1: strange. Is it is strange.
2: sad. Well,. Because and this is the really interesting thing, I think, about the change is that, you know, you had a great foundation with Chris Columbus in setting up the universe. And I think without him, it it could have gone horribly wrong. But because there's that foundation, it allows other people to come in and kind of expand on that and it's almost like you know what tristan uh in star trek generations where you saw the bridge of the enterprise the first time and you're like oh that's what i've been missing all these years on the you know four by three screen Mm -hmm. you know like that's kind of how it feels with this it's almost like oh that's what we've been you know like that we just haven't seen yet and because i feel like in a lot of ways alfonso was able to capture maybe a sense of magic that almost wasn't there before. Like, there was a reality to the world, but there's a sense of real magic, I think, just by the way things float around, the way that magic is just so ingrained in the universe. So, like, when the boys are all playing around in their... um dorm room you know they're eating the candy together and it's this wonderful scene of them making animal noises because that's what happens when you eat wizarding candy of this type you know like it's just so normal but it's also very magical all at the same time so he's found a way to make things feel tangible and organic and real and yet at the same time all you could think was i just want to go to hogwarts more than i've ever wanted to go before that i mean that was for me that's one of the things that i think he really
1: brought um well speaking of hogwarts i i think one of the best things that uh, afonso did was expand hogwarts and it really like if you look at the first two films it was really just like set 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 you know like they they cut from scene to scene but in prisoner of azkaban you saw them travel from one location to the next. They walk through a hallway. They go down some stairs. They go up some stairs. And it just connects the rest of these places. And so it doesn't feel like it was just shot in a studio. It actually feels like they're at a location like Hogwarts. And it was just... So many so many of my favorite things about this movie, as I go back and read about it, were Alfonso's creations. And I, I think this was... This was a fantastic turning point for the series because I don't think, even though I I, I think the uh, the first two films are very much underrated and I think Christopher Columbus is a very underrated director, I, I, I do believe that if he directed all of them like the original plan, I do not think this series would be anywhere near as successful as it was because it, I think it takes that new blood and that new perspective to help it grow and think new things because if Christopher Columbus did the third one and didn't do the fourth one, then that fourth, then that the director of the fourth one might not have a a different foundation to work off of and try new things because we just would have gotten the Christopher Columbus aesthetic every single time. You know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah. you got some really, he brought some really interesting places, not only with the walking and the movement between them, but just the movement in them. Um, And I know, when we started Tristan, you were saying like some of the things you were, your wife was really worried about, uh, uh, the camera movement and stuff. But when you're looking at the, when they're sitting in Professor professor Lupin's office and like the astronomy stuff is kind of spinning around them. It, mm-hmm. it, it like, it's magical. Like that's a professor's office at Hogwarts, you know? And then you get the scene where Sirius is standing outside after he thinks he's a free man, just looking at Hogwarts. And he's just like, I want to go back. Like, makes me want to go in the first
2: place (laughs) well and and that was i think one of the things that i really liked was that i enjoy the locations that they did choose in the first two films but i like the setting that they actually put the castle and the world in and moving it to scotland basically like Mm -hmm. it felt very very british like uh and that was wonderful for the first two films but i th- i felt almost like the wildness of the highlands of scotland there's something magical and mystical and and like spiritual about that place and so when they're walking around you know outside and they go down to hagrid's hut and all of that stuff to me there's a there really is a, there's a wild magicness about it that i think just encapsulates what I thought of when I read the books, you know, and, and that's what I love, you know, and he, like you were saying, Tristan, he adds some amazing, he adds that clock tower, which it wasn't a part of the original cow ca- castle as Rowling describes, but she okayed him doing that and, mm-hmm. and really liked the addition, uh, the bridge to, from the clock tower, you know, to going down to Hadgard's hut, all of that, just really, really beautiful stuff. So, and even changing the Whomping Willow from looking awful in the the second movie to being something that actually looks like a willow. Uh, You know, just that alone was like, okay, finally somebody gets the idea that a willow looks like this. And, you know, Uh, so I just, all of that to me was, I think a wonderful extrapolation of where we had been. And so I just, I really liked it. Um, And another thing too that, so they changed the the uh, Hogwarts uh, uniforms. What did you guys think about that? Because that was kind of a big change as well, just color palette wise.
1: Well, I think that um, it 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 gave a, like you kept talking about this this sense of realism, and I think one way that I, I think the the costume designers that they brought on because they brought on new ones, or I don't know if it was one or a pair, but. Um, they uh they redid almost everything. I think the the only thing that they didn't redesign clothing wise was Snape, and uh one one thing that was really fun about that as well is that Alfonso allowed the extras and the other and the the supporting cast to wear their uniforms however they wanted, and so like it wasn't all uniform the entire time. Like some people had their sleeves rolled up. Some people had their pants riding low. Some people had their shirts untucked and some people were very uniform. Like some people were just very clean and cut and it just, it showed their character and it showed variety and it gave it a texture that it didn't have before.
0: Also seeing them outside of uniforms made it sort of like that realism feel. Right. So if, I can see Hermione running around in a pink hoodie, you know, punching Draco in the face and then, you know, turning back time, like what's to say that I can't put on a pink hoodie and go punch, uh, you know, Malfoy in the face and turn back time with my fake time Turner. Um, You know, it it adds that like um, relatability you know, because kids outside of school don't wear their uniforms at home. Like, parents are like, get that off because I need to clean it if you get it dirty. <laughs> so keep it clean. Um, so, you know, it added that that sense of realism. You could connect with it a little bit more.
1: Yeah. And seeing them together, like seeing them together in their in their outfits that are not school uniforms, it made me kind of lament the fact that we very rarely, very rarely saw that in Star Trek where they were always in their uniform all the time. And I was just like, please give us give us a non-uniform, non-space pajamas, and it'll be a good day.
2: <laughs> yeah. Well, and and like you're saying, Drea, it, there is a reality to it because, yes, when you're in class, you'd have to wear your uniform. But, you know, on the weekends or when you're visiting Hogsmeade or any of those kind of things that you have at school there – you don't have to wear a uniform, so it and what I kind of like is I was watching it. And I remember there was a big hullabaloo about when this movie came out, and their people were upset that they were wearing these kind of more modern clothes, but I was looking at their their outfits and you know Ron looks like a kid who walked out of I've never seen a kid dress like Ron because nobody dresses like him because nobody i mean has their mom you know knit a jumper for them you know uh and hermione's clothes actually look like they could come from a few different time periods it, it, and and harry is the same way it's it they did i felt like a pretty good job in in these at least in this movie of making it seem as timeless as possible while still allowing the kids to have their own personality and, like you said, Tristan, I love the fact that, like, you know, when you see uh, Ron's uniform, he never has his shirt tucked in. He can't tie his tie at all. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, you get those characters that have their, like, I think it might be Seamus. His tie is tied so that the the big part is so high and the little skinny part <laughs> is, like, so long. Like, it's it's never, I mean, it's perfect. That's exactly what you would expect these kids because... That's part of this kind of like teenage rebellion, you know, and that's what prep school is more like, you know, these kids trying to get away with what they can get away with, you know, because mm-hmm. it's controlled anarchy with that many teenagers running around with only, you know, 30 adults to watch them.
0: <laughs> I never really stopped and thought about it, but that's really terrifying.
2: It is really terrifying. It's uh, yeah. It's really
0: terrifying. I can barely
2: handle my best friend's three-year-old by myself, let alone, like, a ton of teenagers. Yeah, it's a scary thought. I mean, and even the kids, I mean, uh, like, Harry's hair looks messier for the first time, and I feel like this movie and the next movie are the only movie where his hair looks more like what I picture in the book, where it's just, like, a complete mess all the time, because uh, that's how Rowling describes it in the book. You know, Ron has his weird hair like all the kids got to kind of grow out their hair and do what they wanted with it because again it it's about them being who they are and bringing that to the character and i just i thought that was great and then last thing i thought was cool with this new direction is they gave them wands that actually didn't just look like well-engineered wands but they gave them these more organic wands that made like they like they came more from nature almost, which I really really love. Hermione's has this beautiful. Uh, my wife has a replica of it, and it has the 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 beautiful etching around it of a vine. And uh, Harry's um, looks almost like it's a few different pieces of wood all melded together uh, and stuff like that. So I just I thought those attentions to detail. It again, it gave it a realistic feel but also made it just seem even more magical than before which you know when i first saw hogwarts and the first two movies i was like can i please just go where's my letter (laughs) um so yeah i was really glad of this change and i think for the most part alfonso brought something to these characters like these kids playing these characters and he really brought out a character focus and to me I feel like that was needed at this point as well, because they're supposed to be 13 and this movie is a little bit darker Mm -hmm. and it's very personal, especially for Harry. And you really start down that road. And I liked that Alfonso starts to bring that character focus out.
1: I think we uh, we we talked about this the last time that I was that I was on uh, talking about Harry Potter was that this the beauty of this series and i think it is the beauty of a, a lot of great book series is that the the characters grow with the readership you know like when when you read this as a young person and you start to grow in age even if you are a little bit older or just a little bit younger uh, well, it's hard to be younger but um you you grow with it and, and things change in your life you know like things get more serious you deal with more serious things Um, you 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 deal with life more and more life issues and if these movies stayed stagnant and stayed the the magic every flavor bean you know for every single film it just it wouldn't really work because life isn't that way life gets more serious life gets dirtier and this was kind of that tipping point for the series and for the characters
0: it was also a a good transition movie i think i think You sort of touched on it a little bit, Matthew, but if we'd waited till the next movie, I think it would have been more difficult to transition to a different director. Mostly because this is also the only storyline that doesn't really directly involve Voldemort. It's all about Sirius Black, and it's all, Voldemort never makes an appearance, even in a flashback. Like, The only reference to him is the fact that Sirius is in jail for supposedly tipping off Voldemort about where Harry's parents are and like the how to get in and break the seal, which they don't talk about in the movie, but whatever. Um, but this is the only one where that doesn't happen. So it's a good one to use as a transition because you don't have to take this preconceived notion of what Voldemort looks like or how he's going to act because once you get that introduction in the fourth one, you sort of set up that character to be who he is. Um, And I think it would have been hard to use that as a transition movie because if you had a different director in the fifth movie, you would be stuck with whatever the director in the fourth movie had kind of gone with, so... Um, I think it was a great a great time to make that change. Of when they decided to make that, Um, and it was you know it says a lot about Christopher Columbus as a director too to be able to acknowledge the fact that if he kept going, he'd have to keep going, Um, and that this was a good time for him to bow out.
2: No, I I think that you make a fantastic point in. That this is not a Voldemort story, you know, like that—that that he's not the the main villain. And what I love about that is that really in the end, this this book, the character focus is on Harry himself, and him and Ron and Hermione kind of moving into teenagehood, you know, like getting to that that point where they're. You know, they're kind of on the cusp of becoming young adults, you know, so it is that really that transition film which is gonna you know, it'll lead fully into that with the Goblet of Fire where they're really all just about hormones racing around and all that kind of stuff. But this it it's it's like that (laughs) I hate to say it, it's almost like that middle school period, you know, where like everything's about to happen, you know, and, mm-hmm. and things are starting to happen, but they're not all quite there yet. And and what I love about that is that, you know, Alfonso challenged them before they, dis- they started filming. And he said, I want you to write an essay about your character. And, of course, Emma wrote a really long essay. And Daniel wrote a sufficient essay. And of course, Rupert didn't write an essay at all.
0: This is that period of time when they're that age, they can get away with eating animal crackers and still like crying to a teacher when something goes wrong. But at the same time, they can still also get away with like wearing their pants too low and not tying their tie right, messing up their hair. Like they're at that weird stage where they can kind of pick which which day it is, which one they want to have. Um, And this is sort of like that after this movie they can't do that anymore <laughs> I'm like that's officially off off the table no more animal crackers for you
1: yeah they're in that adult limbo and it's uh it it's it, it's funny that you point that out i think i think that's very astute that they're in that that adult gray area because like you said after the next one they can't do that anymore like they at the end i love that at the end of the next one at the end of goblet of fire you know, Hermione says things are going to be different, aren't they? And Harry says yes. And that's the, those are the last words of the film. And I-, I think that's so poignant. And this was the beginning of that.
2: Well, and, and what I like too is that, you know, the first two books are very much, they're more childish, you know, they, in a sense, and they're whimsical. This, yeah. They have, a, they have a serious amount of whimsy to them, which is wonderful. But this book starts kind of a, a more, The character focus of the internal struggle of Harry coming to terms with all the crap that's happened to him. Like, he's finally starting to think through a lot of the things that have actually gone on in his life, you know, from the moment he was born till now. And he finds himself struggling with the fact that he doesn't know much about his parents, really. He longs for a family because all he's grown up with is abuse. And he is kind of grasping at different people to be that. You know, I feel like, uh, especially in the film, you see the wonderful relationship between him and Lupin. uh, You know, and uh, he has a pretty good relationship with Dumbledore and Hagrid. So he's really a guy a young man who's looking for a male role model to kind of show him what it means to be a man because the only one he's got is Mr. Dursley and that just ain't cutting it, you know? Um, So I love that 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 part of the story really starts to happen here because once you get into four, five, six, and 7, it is about Harry becoming the man he's going to be and who he's going to choose to be and that starts here. You know, um, and especially that beginning of, oh, it's serious. Maybe he's he's going to be the father figure I can look up to, you know, starts here. And, you know, I guess there's about a third of the book left by that point where he's like, oh, you're cool. You're not really trying to kill me. You're my godfather. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, I mean, it, that's such a great point, Matthew. Because you think about it, even it—it it just totally plays out near the end too. When he's standing by the lake and he's like, "Watch, Hermione, my dad's gonna come. Like, my dad's gonna show mm-hmm. up any second now. He's gonna save us. Just wait." And then he's like, "Oh crap, that's me. Like, that's not my dad. That's me. I have to do that." Um, and seeing that transition from like I'm waiting for someone else to do it for me to like, oh no, I'm I can do it myself. And like, this is who I get to. This is who I'm gonna be. Like, he makes that that step. We're looking for a role model to know. Maybe I'm just looking for guidance and not someone to like do it for me anymore. Which I think, as an as a we take step as an adult, all of us do. I mean, hopefully, hopefully we've all taken that step. Whoa, whoa,
2: whoa, whoa! What
0: step? <sighs> <laughs> does your wife still cut up your chicken? Does she cut the cross off your sandwiches, Matthew?
2: She does not chew my food for me first, <laughs> <laughs> Frankie style. I was going to say anyway. Hold on. Ch- 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 save me, Tristan, save me. Well,
1: okay, so since you already just brought it back to Star Trek, I won't feel as bad because I want to bring it back to Star Trek again, where, uh, uh, Drea, what you just said about uh, about Harry saying, oh, my father's going to help out, my father's going to help out, and then it re- then he realizes that it's actually him and that it, that it was his future, him talking to him, that makes me think of Star Trek 09, where we have uh, J.J. Uh, Spock, go into the shuttle bay and then he sees the back of prime Spock and goes father. And then prime Spock turns around and goes, I'm not our father. And then he talks to him about how, you know, all the great things that he's going to achieve. And it, I just, I don't know. I, I see that parallel there where like, yeah, they didn't have a conversation, but that realization is there.
2: Well, and that's a really, I, I think that's another thing that happens with this, the, the looking at the different characters, you know, especially Harry in this movie, we begin to explore the fact that Harry's more powerful than the normal wizard, you know, by being able to produce the Patronus, which Lupin tells him this is very advanced magic, even for the ordinary wizarding level. Mm-hmm. Like, this isn't something that everybody can just do on a whim. And, you know, Harry, in the movie, he gets it in two tries. In the book, it takes longer. Um, but still you get begin that progression of seeing that there is something just a little bit different. About Harry Potter, and it's not just that he lived, but he's actually a pretty powerful wizard, and he doesn't even know it yet.
0: Well, not even Hermione says that when they're going there. She's like, you know, Dumbledore. I heard Dumbledore, and I don't remember who's talking to, talking to somebody, and saying like, only a very, very powerful wizard could produce an actual Patronus charm, because he taught him how to do the little shield thing, not the like actual like animal Patronus thing that, you know, he produced with the stag and all that, Um, you know, even before then it was like, dude, we don't know who can do that. Like it was pretty crazy.
2: And, and I, I love that. I mean, I just, I love that it all begins here. I also really like, and it's something that's interesting because about the film, you know, the book has the whole side story with uh, Hermione and, and Harry and Ron not getting along for a while because Hermione turns in the firebolt and they don't do that all here. And so this story is really more about um, these characters kind of fully forming as the Trinity um, and, and and really kind of becoming the well-oiled machine that they'll be, whereas in the book it's a lot more broken up and it, it it's a lot more... Um, there's a lot more strife between them, whereas in this, this movie, there isn't. This is one of the few movies where they're not completely at each other's throats for so much of it, even though at the beginning, you know, uh, Crookshanks is trying to eat scabbers, and they're pretty mad at each other, but that goes away. So it is an interesting thing, because this film is very different, you know, um, in that they like each other pretty much this whole movie. You know, and they're they're working really well together, and they're setting that up. I think for the future, and um, I I love it. That's one of the things I really love is just the interplay between the three characters and the way that they've grown together. I mean, it's you know when Ron at the end of the film was like, "What the bloody hell was that all about?" After Dumbledore leaves, and they're like, "Yes, it's awesome."
0: Well, I mean, in the book, they also do a lot and it's in all of the books. Um, Rowling really does build this sort of like, I don't say bromance cause that's not the feeling you get this like brotherhood between Harry and Ron. Like that is like the strongest relationship she makes is between Ron and Harry. Like she focuses on that. And then Hermione is that kind of counterbalance to like keep them from being kind of like knuckleheads. Um, Whereas in the movies, I think they're kind of all treated as this, like you said, Trinity, like they're equal p- parts in this. So I think that's a big shift. And that's, that's kind of the big difference in this one between the book and the movie. Um, in the book and even in the movie, Hermione's absent for a lot of it because of that whole time turner and we're taking so many classes at the same time and stuff. So that's how they kind of like write her out of that. You know, she's too busy and too tired and too stressed to to have a good relationship that, that year. Um but I really loved in this movie that it was really a Harry and Hermione story, at least in the movie portion of it. And that, you know, they get to go and have their own adventure. They get to save the day together. And Ron is stuck in the hospital wing with his leg up because serious, you know, nod on his leg a little bit. Um, so I mean it was really interesting because nom this is nom the nom old- nom. Right? Arr, arr. Uh, doing little hand motions here. It's radio. Um <laughs> But besides kind of that last part, or I guess that that middle section of the last book where you get the the um, Harry and Hermione scene, which isn't even really a bonding one for them. It's more of a con- consoling each other section. You don't really get a Ron and Hermione story. You either get all three of them or a Harry and a Ron story. So, I mean, it's kind of an interesting take on this book and a different approach in that you sort of get this... this Platonic male-female like relationship that normally builds into some sort of relationship later on in a storyline that remains completely friend-based in this whole entire series, which is really refreshing.
1: Yeah, I uh, I, I like everything you said. I I, I think uh, it's I I really appreciate that they didn't focus on their the the conflict between the three kids in this movie because that was my least favorite part of Goblet of Fire was when Ron and Harry were fighting. It just, I I know it's good for character growth and they needed to overcome personal obstacles. I I get it. I understand that. But I was just, I didn't enjoy it. Like, I didn't enjoy watching it. And I feel like there was no room for it in Prisoner of Azkaban, at least in the movie version. And I'm glad that they recognized that. And uh, also with Harry and, and Hermione together, it's... I, I was surprised at how much I enjoyed this dual relationship where it was just the two of them. Cause I love the three of them together and you know, like Harry and Ron, you know, go together like peanut butter and jelly. And, and, but for some reason you just don't, you didn't up until now, you Hermione's didn't really the think bananas. about that. Yeah, and Hermione's the bananas. Yeah. And you just did never really thought about it until this movie. And so I was glad that we got to see that in Deathly Hallows part one where it was just Harry and Hermione for a long time, even though I didn't like that movie. I did like that aspect of it. I liked I, I liked Hermione and, uh, and, and Harry together.
0: And I don't think you could have gotten that without this. Like, I don't think you could have gotten right. book yeah. part one without building that relationship between Ron and Hermione now, where you already know they trust each other and they work well on their own. Otherwise, I think you would have gotten in that weird, like, sexual area that, like, she wasn't trying to take it. So I think we were able to totally, like, not go there because we had this to sort of base it on
1: and that makes the sexual stuff in part one that much weirder like 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 the the visions that that ron was having you know like it makes it that much more unbelievable and to the point and awkward yeah and that's how it was supposed to be
2: well and and except for ron who that's his greatest fear right you know that you know he would be overshadowed anyway that's that we'll talk about when that gets sorry wrong movie no but I totally love what you're saying Dre because I think it's an amazing part of Rowling's uh creation in the fact that Harry again he needs family and these two are the first parts of of found family that he's going to get you know um obviously later on he will actually become a part of the Weasley family. You know, he's going to marry Jenny. They're going to have kids. That's going spoilers! to actually be his. Spoilers. Be his, yeah, spoilers. Uh, that's going to be his family. But, you know, Hermione is as just as much a part of that family as Ron is. And they're like his brother and his sister. And I love that, you know, I lament the fact that the, we live in a world where everything is over-sexualized. So every relationship, for some reason, has to be sexual, It's either between a guy and a girl or a girl and a girl or a guy and another guy. It's like, can't we just be friends? We all need just friendships and and, and that familial type bond of like, you're my brother from another mother, you know, and the same thing with, you know, a, a guy and a girl. It doesn't have to be like the sex thing getting in the way. It can just be. She's like my sister. He's like my brother. We love each other, but not in that way, you know. And and that's a wonderful thing about this story. And them two in this movie together, Hermione and and Harry, are just so wonderful because they can hug. Uh, when when she's scared, uh, with uh the werewolf coming after them, as uh you know we've got. Uh... <laughs> We've we've got looping on the loose, you know. Uh, ooh, that's funny. Looping on the loose. Anyway. Um,
1: that's and uh, you know I was gonna say that's we just found band. the name of the episode.
2: But I just I, I think that's wonderful. that all those things can happen between them and there's nothing there, you know. It it's it is. This is she's my sister, he's my brother. That's that's our relationship. And I think that's wonderful and it's it's much needed in our world today. Like everybody doesn't have to be banging each other. We we really need friends, you know. This we need a actual CW, friends, guys. Saint <laughs> <laughs> One Tree Hill.
1: I that's why I really enjoyed that scene where uh where we all thought that Buckbeak, Buckbeak died. Where the three of them were consoling each other and they were all holding each other and hugging each other and it was completely non sexual and all three were involved and it was very touching. It was very cool and I loved seeing that and I wanted to see more of that.
0: So I always thought of the Harry Potter series as like, it's like, colon, find your tribe. Like they they have to find who who works with them, who's their like adopted family, because they trust these people way more than sometimes they trust like their own family. You, later in the series, you get you get students at Hogwarts turning against their family to be on Harry's side, you know. So I always thought of this all as just the best definition of friendship, because it has its bad times, like they fight, they're not always happy go lucky and perfect, like they squabble. he calls them like a right foul git, which is like my favorite insult of all time um and but yeah, they like come back and they're like, oh, I was dumb, I'm sorry, and it's like immediately forgiven, and they still like can love each other and move on. so I always thought this this was, and this is I think you get it in the first two books, but I think this is the first book and movie where you get that solid we're not rejecting hermione cuz she's a know-it-all anymore and we're not you know we're not fighting against each other kind of in the second one a little bit like this is the first one where they're like okay maybe we're better together than we are apart
2: and and it is it is wonderful and and there are some great moments you know in the film where there is the sexual tension between ron and and hermione there's the nice undertone when they're standing there at the shrieking shack without harry and she's like it's the most haunted you know, place in Britain, did I mention that? And he's like, yeah, you did. And she's like, do you want to move a bit closer? And he's like, what? No, no, I'm fine right here. And it's the subtext of, I, uh, no, I'm not ready to move this forward yet. You know, like, you can read it that way and it's, it's really cute because they're they have the budding romance and it's 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 wonderful i always Um, thought
0: of the scene where they're they're talking about Buckbeak, they're meeting him for the first time in class and they like accidentally grab each other's hands when harry starts walking up and then they both like drop it and get like super awkward and screwed apart that's probably one of my favorite scenes
2: of the movie i mean it's happened to us all you know (laughs) so um yourself this movie does some interesting things because we've got character focus. We had a new director, but we had some new characters that get introduced that become things that people love. And you already brought them up, Drea, but you know, they did have to replace Dumbledore. Uh, unfortunately, Richard Harris did die. He was not able to continue. Um, actually, Richard Harris's family wanted Peter O'Toole uh, to replace him because they were good friends, but um, they went with Michael Gambon. So what do you guys think? As he comes in to fill some, you know, very large shoes for the fan base. First time
0: I saw him, I didn't really notice it was a different person. Like the very first time, like years ago when I first saw it, because of the time difference between the gap between like two and three, I had no idea they were two different people. It was I was watching the movie. and I was like, that is not the same guy who used to play Dumbledore. Um, And then I looked it up and then I was like, "Okay." Um, I don't think that Richard Harris could have brought the same dynamic and I don't want to say angry, but maybe like, like a worldly aspect to Dumbledore that, um, Michael Gammon did. Like he brought that like caring and wise aspect, but still not perfect and kind of angry a little bit, a little, little bit of dash of like arrogance. Crazy. Crazy, yeah, like there's a little dash of that like crazy wizard that you hear about um in him that i don't I don't know that we could have gotten from Richard Harris, so I'm totally cool with who we got.
1: I was very excited immediately, and I loved Gambin's uh interpretation because i i, I appreciated it uh, because Richard Harris was such a great Dumbledore, and I think many people believed him to be a perfect Dumbledore because he just he nailed the book Dumbledore. In, in, in such a great way that, you know, like he, he was calm. He was collected. He was, he was quiet when he needed to be, but he was loud when he needed to be as well. And he, it, it just, it just worked, especially under the Christopher Columbus aesthetic. But when the perfect casting choice dies, what do you do? Do you do an imitation? Do you do, uh, you know, do you try to do it as close as possible and no, you can't, you cannot duplicate that kind of performance, and so Gambin goes in the opposite direction, which he's gotten a lot of criticism for, but I think he would have gotten even more criticism if he just did a recreation of Richard Harris, and I know like in the next film, I know a lot of people hate this moment when he you know like he had, he confronts Harry about putting his name in the in the goblet of fire, but I love that moment because in the book it's just like Harry. Did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? And then in in the movie, it's just like, Daryl, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? And it's it's perfect because it just it amps up the scene. And I just, Gambon, I just, I love Gambon so much. I don't care what anybody says. I think it's great.
0: I feel like we need Tristan Riddell as, as Dumbledore. That was excellent. Uh, yes,
2: yes. In my next rereading, I'm just going to get Tristan to read all Dumbledore's lines. Yeah. Um, that would It would
1: just be me screaming like that the entire time. Yeah,
2: the whole time. Like, um, but alas,
1: earwax. Sorry.
2: <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. That's awesome. Goodness, it's just goodness, awesome. Goodness. Okay, so no, I... I completely agree. I think Gambin was a great choice. I think he brings a quirkiness to the role that is there in the book that doesn't come out in Harris's. Uh and Dumbledore's kind of an eccentric dude, you know. Nobody really gets him. And a lot of the the undertones that you get especially in the later books, I think he is able to bring to light for the most part and so I really I really like him. I, I think he did a great job, and so I had no problems. And I think at this movie, he does a great job of stepping in and making it seem as seamless as possible. Yeah. So um, it, it's wonderful. And, uh, you know, I, I don't know. Um, again, it's like the rogues gallery of amazing British actors, but Gary Oldman as Sirius Black, I mean, can the guy do any wrong? I, I don't know. But he is he one of my favorites awesome. of all
0: time. I love Gary Oldman. I can't think of even in when he plays a bad guy in Air Force 1 against terrorists and Ford like I'm rooting for Gary Oldman. Like, <laughs> <laughs> I'm rooting for the terrorists <laughs> like
1: <laughs> Don't
2: isolate that audio, I was guys. just about to say that. <laughs>
1: Do not take that as a soundbite and play it on Fox News. Yeah.
2: <laughs> context people, context is Con- is king. Context is you everything. need the context.
1: Well, no, Gary.
0: If I ever run for office anywhere, that's, <laughs> that's right.
1: <laughs> Gar- Gary Oldman is one of those chameleons that only comes around a couple times a generation, and he is a treasure. And he, 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 it's hard to get better than Gary Oldman. I mean, like you, you can you can put him in any single movie, and he will conform to that that genre, that feeling, that that aura, and it just so like why wouldn't like uh why wouldn't you put him in Harry Potter because he'd be able to just morph into that world immediately and he did.
2: Well, and I mean all of those, and I knew a lot of them, but there were so many women that were in love with Sirius that I I knew working at um because I worked at Barnes Noble for a very long time, and so many women there just loved Sirius. They kind of liked the dark, brooding character. And I think Gary Oldman brought that to life so perfectly in this movie. You know, his emaciated body, the tattoos that he has, you can tell that Sirius probably got as a rebellious teenager that are fading and don't look as good as they used to, you know. Uh, it, he plays the role with such abandon and so wonderfully. And when you play him off of David Thulis, Who's playing Lupin? I mean, I knew Thulis from way back in the day when Dragonheart came out. Yeah, he's the evil king, and he's uh, just—he's awful in that movie in the sense that he plays like this really nasty character. But then to have him playing Lupin, who is this warm, cozy—you know—father figure for Harry, the kind of person that I think he's longed to have his entire life. Who has an interesting secret. You know he is wonderful. I I think his his Lupin is one of my favorite things in the films, and I kind of just wish they they gave him more, especially in the last movie. Um, they really needed to to add his scenes back in, uh, because um, it was so important for the storyline, and and he deserved more. I mean, he's just awesome.
0: Yeah, I think um, I was not in love with Sirius. Unfortunately, I love him as a character. I was never in love with him as a wizard.
2: That's good because he's not real.
0: Oh, thank you. Thank you. I wouldn't have known otherwise. Um, <laughs> but I, he always had a special like place in my in your heart. He's the one that probably could have been what you'd think of as like a cool kid at Hogwarts. Um <laughs> Like he could have been like a jock at Hogwarts or something, um, but he chose to like hang out with Lupin and Pettigrew and, you know, and James. I think that's where hit what him and James kind of had in common. Um, so I I don't know. He was just always a really interesting character. And in this movie, um, the crazy look we get from Sirius and all those posters everywhere, um, and just anytime you saw him, he played the the determined killer thing so well and that the misunderstanding the whole sort of he's trying to kill harry they think he's trying to kill harry but he he thinks they know he's trying to kill scabbers but like that whole like that misunderstanding is just so well played by everyone like they they are so committed to what they believe they cannot see the misunderstanding um which could have easily kind of gone comical and cheesy and it didn't
2: well, on top of those two gentlemen and a new Dumbledore, you know we have Torlani, who I mean, could could they have picked a better person than Emma Thompson?
1: The it uh, wasn't it originally. Um, oh, with uh, what's her name? The uh, oh my gosh, I'm completely blanking on her name. She is the one in Doctor Strange, totally. Um, Tilda Swinton. Thank you. Yes, Tilda Swinton. Originally, Tilda Swinton was offered the role, and uh, she turned it down. I think they, I think they, they got what. The, I think they got the best situation.
2: Yeah, they did. They did because she would have turned it like this weird, creepy, weird and... androgynous
1: creepy. Yeah. That and... was the word I was looking for, Dre. I was looking. I was like the androgynous
2: actress. Yeah.
1: From Constantine.
2: <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. Played Michael
2: from Constantine. Yeah, Emma Thompson just nails the role. I mean, it's she plays exactly what Rowling wrote on the page, and that character just comes to life as you're reading it, and Emma Thompson just does such a good job of making that woman seem real and yet just as funny and goofy and weird and awkward as, I mean, when she's telling Hermione about, you know, how she cleaves to the... Cold, dusty pages, and that's just like her cart. The way she says it is, is perfect, and she doesn't even realize she's, you know, en- embarrassed and made her feel like crap. It's awesome. I would have, I would have done what Hermione
0: did, and I would have like knocked the ball out of her hand and just stormed <laughs> off. Of, <laughs> the,
2: the, I support Hermione. One of the things I wanted to ask you guys because there's some seriously awesome. Creatures and wizarding world things that she introduces that Rowling introduces and the film does too um wanted to ask you what do you think about lupin's werewolf? How does that work for you uh, it was uh
1: it was a little it was a little gangly for my tastes uh but I did like how eerie it was because it, it they it was i was glad that they did something different with it you know like with the design and the and the concept because you know, like we we we've seen werewolves so much in the past fifteen years, uh, in different kind of sci-fi fantasy stories, and so I guess I'm kind of contradicting myself. Where I it, it was it was a little too stringy for me, but I appreciated that they were trying to do something different.
0: I I don't think it really struck me as I I don't want to say uncomfortable, but it was an uncomfortable looking monster, um, until this watch through. Um, before, I think I was I was kind of like, yeah, it's just different, yeah, cool. It's a it's a new werewolf, but I think this time I watched it and I was a little bit like, eh, he just looks like like a shaved cat. Like <laughs> it's, it's just a little uncomfortable. Really large
2: shaved Siamese cat.
0: Yeah. So it, to me, it was a little uncomfortable, but I totally agree with Tristan. Like, I'm I'm glad that they changed what it is so you didn't have this preconceived notion of what a werewolf should look like
2: i I was thinking that as i was watching it this time i was like i am thankful that it is this kind of weird wacky strange otherworldly looking like creature that looks vaguely like a wolf but doesn't just look like a man wolf you know it actually looks like you got turned into something that nobody wants to be and, you know, that's the way Rowling makes werewolves sound like in her books. This is not something you want to be. Whereas, you know, other films, other series, it's, you know, you're a werewolf. That's cool. Uh, you know, this is not Twilight. So, uh, thank God.
0: Well, and I think I think she comes back, she revisits the fact, in, in spoilers, later on when we meet Fenrir Greyback, and he is his werewolf self, but he looks more like a mutilated man wolf and less of a wolf or this kind of gangly shaved cat thing. Like she, she, they made, they made some, they realized that wasn't quite right. And so they kind of adapted it. Um So I think they realized there was a little uncomfortable after it was done and they just had to figure out something different.
2: Well, and I think, I mean, to me, one of the cool, the my, my favorite scene in the whole movie is the Buckbeak scene especially when Harry's flying and the music to it it just you put it all together but that creature creation that thing still looks great i mean i just um it it really does almost look real still which is great for cgi of that time period to still come across like that and it's it's it really is it's one of my favorite creature creations for harry potter i think they just nailed it
1: when I think about Buckbeak, I think about two things. I think about how awesome it was when Harry was flying on top of him, and uh, it was, and then his his claws kind of just grace the the, the water yes. just a, just a little bit. I just love that little touch. And also, the first time we see Buckbeak, he's pooping. <laughs>
2: yep, there is CGI crap. On... Yep, there you go.
0: Um, I, I think along those lines, I think my favorite is when they, they kidnap Buckbeak and he mm-hmm. eats the ferret off of Hermione and she doesn't notice. And she's like, Hey, cause you're so used to him being sort of a scary creature until then. And that's like the moment where you're like, Oh, he's just like a little kitty trying to eat the treats off here off your, like, you know, neck or whatever. Like, that's that moment where you're like, oh, okay, so there's the animal part and less the scary monster part. Well, and then he
2: saves them. And I love that Harry's like, oh, poor Professor Lupin. He's having a really tough night. <laughs> yeah, that was good. <laughs> oh, okay. I gotta say, bringing the night bus to life was exactly what was in my head. I love the night bus. That thing is just awesome. Can we get one? Because <laughs> it looks like a lot of fun. That's
0: both my... My absolute favorite and my least favorite part of the movie—it's both. Like, it plays a dual role. I think it's incredible, and I just want to punch that like hanging head off the rearview mirror. I just want to like drop kick it out the window, and then it's in—it's on the menu
2: of the deep. Wait, TV. wait, guys! Why the long faces?
0: <laughs> I just—I just, I just want to punch it in the face, like
2: three, three
1: and a half. Tree and tree does
0: <laughs> Like, I just, like, I love that part. And I like Stan on the night bus, and he gets a bigger part in the books than he does in the movie. Um, a much, actually, quite a bit bigger part in the books than he did in the movie. But, um, but like, that stupid that, head.
1: That voice actor who plays the shrunken head was is actually married to the fat lady.
2: That's gonna be some. Those would be some interesting kids. Yeah,
1: that'd be an oh. interesting family
2: photo. Oh, yeah. Well, and you <laughs> but know it'll be a very fat that hit. Rowling says she's like, I wish I actually had created those things. I saw the film and I thought that they were just great. So she really enjoyed somebody adding something to her world, and she was. She said on the extras, she's like, I saw those things. And I was like, damn it, I wish I had created those. <laughs> so I thought that was fantastic that she could see things that, you know, she didn't bring to life, but she's like, okay, that's a part of Harry Potter for me too. So um, I have to say too, the Dementors are perfect. And I mean, there's, that's exactly, and, and as creepy as they are, the way their mouths look like they are, have been dipped in acid, the way they suck souls. I mean, everything about the Dementors is exactly kind of what I pictured in the books maybe creepier. I I really wanted them
1: to keep this design. I I really liked this design and I was kind of disappointed when they changed them in the subsequent movies.
0: And more ghost like and less being like
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah,
0: I agree. I like that and I love the element of the the temperature going with it and the fact that you feel like all happiness is left like i love i love that they use the cold and the ice to sort of portray that like loss of happiness because i was kind of wondering how they were going to do that like that's a big part of a dementor is you feel like there's no joy left in the world so it was interesting they used ice and the cold for that because i live in arizona for a reason (laughs) because there's no ice or cold here
1: (laughs) when alfonso uh, told the the cgi artist to make ice falling from the sky and that he wanted ice everywhere his accent was so thick that the cgi artist thought he was saying eyes and so they went as far they they they, <laughs> they did storyboards of whenever the dementors came there was literal eyes falling from the sky and alfonso was just like what what are you doing <laughs> <laughs>
0: What, that's what the awesome. duck is that? <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, oh, crap. That's Drea's fantastic. autocorrect is on. Yep, <laughs> it is. Thank God for autocorrect. It means I don't have to bleep. Um, I What I thought was always really cool, just about the idea of the Dementors and the fact that they could suck out your soul, was, uh, to me, it was just always really interesting what Rowling was saying, like that we have souls, you know? And if you don't have your soul you lose everything that you are. And she's saying a lot without saying anything, like just putting it in the story. And I think that's a really interesting thing. And so I just always, lo- and then the way that they animated that, where Sirius has it almost completely gone and all the life and everything that he is drains out of him. And then when it comes back, all his color comes back and who he is comes back. It's just, it's really well done in the film. I have to say, I think they just, I think they nailed it. Um, The only thing in the film, I guess, effects-wise that I don't love is I don't like that it's not the Patronus Patronus, you know, the stag running around. Um, I I don't like that it's just kind of like these waves of light because I don't think that's as visually interesting. It's kind of boring. And it would have been so much cooler. Um, You know, they get it right in the fifth movie, luckily, what Patronus should look like. But um, that's my only nitpick. And then... I gotta say, my wife has a time turner. Uh, it doesn't work. I'm kind of pissed. <laughs> so, because that is such a cool thing to have invented for this movie.
1: Rushing, I just want to go just go back real quick. I just want to go back real quick um, with the Dementors. I think that adds it 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 adds another layer to it to everything that you just said. Once you realize that Rowling uh, wrote this as uh, uh, an analogy, a metaphor, whatever you want to call it, uh, about her battle through depression. And yeah, it yeah. just I think the the idea that you know, like if the dementors represent depression and they just come into your life without warning, they suck out your soul, they suck out your energy, and there's nothing you can do about it and and uh, except eat chocolate you know I, I I think you know like it it's it's a way that we can it's a it's a visual metaphor for what a lot of people have to go through,
0: well, and then that's when you know Lupin points out that they go to Harry because he has seen and experienced and, and has like feelings that no one else's age can understand. And not even a lot of people just in general can't understand that he's not weak because, He's you know he's subjected to these so much stronger than anybody else it's it's because he's unique not weak um and trying to explain that to like draco and the other kids who are making fun of him for fainting like that's a real life scenario that kids and adults find themselves in regularly is they just don't under they're just not understood and so they get this sort of depression feeling and no one gets it and you know this was exactly what you said like she just spelled it out and gave you a visual medium for it
2: And it's impressive because, you know, having been there myself as well, it it is a dark, deep hole that you don't feel like you can get out of. And you do kind of just feel like somebody sucked out your soul and you're just walking around mindlessly without any real feeling or anything. So it is a a really nice uh, way of helping to show and explain that to kids in a I think, in a way that they can understand, you know? So it is really well done. I have to ask you guys about something book versus movie because I love this book. This is still my favorite book in the series because of the turn it makes, because of the way that... uh, Everything changes in this book, you know. Hermione says in in the fourth one, everything's going to change now, isn't it? You know, but this is really the book where everything changes for the storyline. It it starts to become more serious.
0: Ah. And
2: yeah, yeah, I see what I did there. <laughs> this is the story along with 5 where it's the explanation that really matters. Like 5, I'll we'll talk about that one when we get there, but they don't really completely explain in the movie in the way that they need to to make you understand. Because you don't really get all the revelations. You never learn about the map. I mean, if you're watching the movie, you've never read the book, why do Lupin and Black know this map works and that it never lies? Um, And why do we never learn the way in which Black has actually betrayed the Potters to Lord Voldemort and why it was really Peter instead And then we actually never learn how Sirius got out of Azkaban in the first place, you know. And then we actually never learn the fact that they're all Animaguses. And this actually, all, all this stuff, it really means something in the story. And it means something later, too, because this book also begins building what Harry learns about his parents that informs the strife between his parents and Snape, but also between Snape and Harry. And why Snape can't let it go. This starts that process of him learning about his parents. And, like, all of these revelations mean something. And yet, we get like most of it completely glossed over in the Duckin movie. And it drives me crazy. And that's why I don't love this movie as much as I should.
0: So, I think that the storyline in the book is better than the storyline in the movie but I think that in the movies they remained consistent and they told you what you needed to know. They told, they followed up in book five based off of what they already told you in three. So they didn't hope you already knew something you needed to know for the fifth book. Like they tell you who everyone on the map is, but they don't do it till book five. Um, So it's sort of a callback to the earlier movie. Um, So I like the story in three and I like the book. But for me, this is one of those cases where one's not better than the other. They had to shorten it, and maybe they didn't take out what we wanted them to take out. But I think it still makes sense. And the only question that you raised that I think could have easily been answered in this is how he got out of Azkaban. Because yeah, you still don't know. You never know in the movies. <laughs> you never know how he got out when you just like they, that's the only question they don't actually answer.
2: I will say that it. I. I did, like, two lines to my wife the other night when we were talking about this and that they could have added in the movie of Lupin saying, I'm Mooney, he's Padfoot, you know, your dad was Prongs. Like, you can add all that in, in, like, two lines in the movie so and expository. make it make sense. It's so expository. Like, why do you, no, have,
0: I, to, why do you, you have to... Why do you have Why can't I learn it?
2: But Because this is... I, I, well, I think this is where the filmmakers... Began to take the shortcuts of saying, well, everybody's just read the book. And, but I don't think it makes for good storytelling in the medium of film if you cut corners like that with important story points. Like that, to me, that just, I mean, I I don't mind you adding maybe five more scene, I mean five more minutes of exposition in that storyline because that's what all the entire story's been building to, like is all the answers. But in book but five, you... they
0: start using those nicknames instead of saying, Hi, I'm Padfoot. Like they just start going by Padfoot. They just start going by uh, Mooney. Like they just start going by those names and you figure out, okay, well, Harry's dad's. Paternus was a stag. He must be prongs. And then like you figure it out. They don't have to spell it out for you. And oh, it would have been good to know because the map was a big part of this movie. It didn't, it wasn't necessary. Like I learned it in five. You use the map in five. Like things made sense still then. So I didn't need it. Like I didn't feel like it was missing for me.
2: Yeah, we're not going to agree on that one. I totally think it's, it's needed. Just because, again, it's—I I don't know. What do you think, Tristan?
1: Uh, you're talking to the wrong person. Um, I—I I, I didn't. I was wondering how long I could go without admitting this, but the only book that I've ever read of Harry Potter was this one, and it was so long ago I don't remember a single thing from it. So there you go. It's—it's it's out there. It's on the air. It's forever
2: recorded. All right, you're dead to me. So. <laughs> <laughs> um no i i i I do understand though what you're saying drea i mean i i i I know that a film and and books are a different medium but i I do think that you can do a better job of servicing some of the wonderful reveals that come in the book that pay off what you've been doing in the storyline in the movie better you don't have to do them all because again you don't have to do the crookshank story who has been helping serious black you don't do need to do any of that stuff but i mean some quick exposition some a few lines here and there could have helped so
0: i think we've just agreed on this in the past that you you don't mind a yeah. little more exposition and i'm like let me watch it
2: yeah oh no i i mean hey, I'm an extended Lord of the Rings Hobbit film fan person, so that's me. Uh, Give me more, not less. So, um, yeah, I can't wait for that new Batman v Superman cut of three hours. Last thing, the score in this movie is the last time that Williams will be in the Harry Potter universe, and I wanted to ask you guys what you thought of this one.
0: They all are wonderful. I love them all. I think that's one of my favorite parts of the movies in general are always the score, but I think you guys kind of already nailed it with the scene where he's riding Buckbeak around. Like it's amazing. It's just, that's what makes all these movies so magical. I think the music is a huge, huge part of that. Um, so, I mean, I think you. this was the first time I think it made this huge, massive difference. Um, I mean, besides the little, like, tinkling intro you get that's very iconically Harry Potter, this is the first time, like, the music made a difference. And I think it's because we started to have that turn towards the darker, we started to have that turn towards adulthood, you know, that it got bigger and bolder and, and, like, more intense, and I loved it.
1: I think with this one, I, I, I really enjoyed the score, and right off the bat, like, almost right from the beginning, when they first arrive at Hogwarts, that choir scene with Something Wicked This Way Comes from um, from Macbeth, I, I, I was in awe of it. I was like, oh, that's so cool. That's so catchy. I want a full version. Give me a full version of this so I can hear the rest of it. And that just gets stuck in your head like crazy. And that was one of Alfonso's creations and he handed it off to Williams and Williams, Williams is like, let's make this a motif. Let's put this into other sections of the score. And it just, that's my favorite part of the score. So that makes it one of my favorite scores.
2: The scene with Buckbeak is incredible. And like you said, dre it is one of those moments where John Williams reminds you, one, how great he is of creating an incredible theme. But two, the importance of music, of thematic music in film. Um, and, you know, I think in a lot of ways that is something that's been lost as we're moving out throughout film, so many soundtracks are just atmospheric and not thematic. And Williams created themes that fit with moments. I mean, even the the Aunt Marge theme he does is wonderful. The night bus theme, that, that psychedelic jazz that he's got playing. Um, you know, all of these things. The, he has this when they uh, are doing the time turner He's using all these sounds, you know, inside the theme that he's got going on. So, I mean, he's just so good. And to me, in my humble opinion, this is one of William's best scores ever. And I didn't think that I could like a score more than, Harry Potter-wise, than the original. But I think, to me, this is actually my favorite. And really, it's because he just brought it to the next level. You know, and I, I just love it. So I, you know, another one knocked out of the park by Johnny for me, and I, I just tip my hat to the guy. It's the guy's amazing. So let's let's uh, let's rate it. Let uh, Drea, what would you rate Harry Potter and uh, the Prisoner of Azkaban?
0: Well, are we going off seven for books or eight for movies?
2: Oh, uh, that's a good call. Let's do seven. Because it's better to have an odd number, I think. Okay. Uh
0: I'm gonna go one is the best, seven is the worst, and I'm gonna say it is like ai I'm I've got I've got a one and I've got two two and a half, so it's one of the two and a halves.
1: I didn't follow that in the least. I have no idea if you like it or you don't like it.
0: Sorry. Let me make this easy. It is my third favorite Harry Potter movie. <laughs> I I go yeah. I go four, five,
1: three. I I think I might be around there. I I, th- I think it might be it it's it's on the upper echelon me it's definitely one of the better ones in my opinion because actually when i first saw it I, I didn't really like it that much i i didn't like the direction i didn't like alfonso's direction i didn't like the camera movement i didn't like the aesthetic and i kind of had to grow up as an individual and appreciate the filmmaking behind it more i had to, uh, to grow as an adult and 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 go back and watch it and realize oh wow this really is great this really is cool and so yeah this is definitely this is like i'd say i i can't think of right now i just i, I just thought i was like man i need to go on Letterbox right now and make a list uh but it, it would be around the number th- number three spot like you Andrea.
2: i really i mean i for the most part i really like this movie um i don't like it as much as i would if they had done some more story stuff but that's neither here nor there because i can't change that so out of seven if I ever actually give it a rating, I would probably say that this is a six out of seven stars. It's just a, it's a really good movie. It's really solid. It's well done. I, I um, unlike you, and for me, I, I saw this movie like six times in the theater because I really enjoyed it. Like I loved the aesthetic of it. I, I loved the way that he had changed things and, um, it felt like a richer deeper fuller more magical world and to me that what more could i want from a harry potter film so yeah i i don't even know like rankings wise what this is it's probably like number two three or four for me if i'm thinking about the series so i'll have to do that in letterbox as well tristan so just remind me i should probably go do that um let me just get okay Oh, Really appreciate uh, the fact that, you know, we get to do this every week. I love talking about, like, Harry Potter and Star Wars and James Bond and all these things we get to do here on the 602 Club. And there are some amazing guys that help make that possible through Patreon.com. We've got Ken Tripp and Davis Grayson, and without them, this show wouldn't be possible. And, in fact, the network wouldn't be possible without Patreon and our patrons through that go to patreon.com slash trekfm and you can see how you can be part of our team, help support the network. We can't do this without you guys and we appreciate you so much for supporting what we do and I hope that you will want to be part of it because, you know, um, one of the things I love about Trek FM is you doing what you do keeps us ad-free. You know, you just get content. You don't have to listen to any of that kind of stuff. So uh, without you guys, we can't make that possible. So just go to patreon.com slash trek fm and you can see how you can help continue to make that happen uh drea i love having you on the show it's so much fun and in fact we actually got to meet in real life at a bar yes (laughs) we can say that um and uh, yeah, you were up here in Portland with your husband. It was fantastic. Yeah, I loved getting to hang out with you, but uh, let everybody know where they can find you online. And then, of course, about educating geeks, which you're part of.
0: Yeah. So you can find me personally online at PCF Chick um, or on Facebook, also PCF Chick. Um, and I am an associate producer for educating geeks. Um, We are a a twice-monthly podcast um, or bi-weekly podcast, depending on what time of year you hit us up, Um, and we try to help our fellow geeks learn about other geekdoms and other topics um, without sort of shaming them or, you know, having the moment where you're like, you've never seen Harry Potter? Oh, my God, you're so bad. We're like, oh, you've never seen Harry Potter? Well, I guess we get to watch it again. Oh, darn. And no one is ever upset about that. So, and then we get together and we talk about it and look at the different perspectives and hey, you know, when we saw this, do we think differently about it now? Um, So, it's uh, really great and we're at EducatingGeeks.com and all the social media is at EducatingGeeks, so check us out. And I'm always really excited to be here too, so thank you.
2: Well, everybody should be checking out Educating Geeks and they should be checking you out online. So, because you just joined Instagram. I did just join so, Instagram. Yeah, what's like, up with that? I'm not, yeah, it's a whole new world.
0: I feel like 16-year-old girls have that up on me right now. I'm a little ashamed.
2: <laughs> <laughs> well, Tristan, you're all over the place, too. So let everybody know where they can find you online and what you're up to.
1: Well, you can find me on Twitter at The Insane Robin. That's probably the easiest way to get a hold of me. You can also find me elsewhere on the Trek.fm network on To The Journey, which is a Star Trek podcast of Star Trek Voyager that I co-host with Charlene Schmidt. And I'm also a part of the Nerd Party Network. You can find us at thenerdparty.com. There we have three shows, uh, two of which I am on, The Senate Floor, which is a General Geek podcast, and uh, also Nerd Nuptial, which is a show that I host with my wife, where we look at the, uh, the, the nerd life through a married lens. And of course, there is the, one of the best Star Wars podcasts ever made on the network called Aggressive Negotiations, and uh, uh, hosted by the man sitting across from me right now.
2: Well, I'm only as good as the other masters on the show. John Mills, you know, he brings all the fire. I just I just try to keep up. So, uh, <laughs> But yeah, hit us up there. That'd be great. I'm on Twitter at MattRushing02. I do that Instagramy thing. I don't take as many selfies as 16-year-old girls, so thank God uh, I'm, I'm rushing there. You can also find me here on the network talking about Star Trek Deep Space Nine with Chris Jones. It's a blast talking about Trek's best show. You can also find me on Literary Trek's Talking about the books and the comics of Star Trek, and of course, interviewing the authors as well with Dan Gunther and Bruce Gibson. You can also find me on that little show, Aggressive Negotiations, which is a blast to do as well. Please check us out at the nerdparty.com or, of course, on iTunes. And yeah, that's pretty much all the places you can find me. And I want to say thank you so much for joining us. Y'all come back now, you hear?